Welcome to week number three of our Advent series. We've been examining some challenging mysteries concerning the manger over the last couple of weeks. In week number one, we looked at the virgin birth, the holy conception of Jesus. Um, by the Holy Spirit, Mary conceived and brought forth the Son, and we call Him Jesus. And last week, we looked at the mystery surrounding God with us, and today we're exploring another pretty big mystery. But before we get to today's mystery... Let's uh, want to begin with an unusual question. Here's the question this morning. Don't, don't shoot me quite yet. Uh, what would the Christmas story be like with uh, what would the Christmas story be like without, I should say, the stable, the manger, uh, Joseph, Mary, Bethlehem, shepherds, wise men, angel star, and the baby? What would it be like without all of those Bible characters um, being part of the Christmas story? Now I'll confess it's an odd question. And I know that some of you are going, say what? You know, you can't have the Christmas story without all of those um, elements. You can't have the Christmas story without the donkey, for instance. Like, what would the Christmas story be without the donkey that took Mary to Bethlehem? What would the Christmas story be like without the manger or the star or the angels or even the baby? Now, I can sense in the room this morning that there are some of you who are ready to tie me up with Christmas lights and throw me into the Cornwallis River for even asking such a question. How can the Christmas story be the Christmas story without the Christmas characters? And some of you even have your arms crossed, you're watching online or you're here in this room this morning and you've got your lips and you're poting. I can't tell you're poting because you have a mask on, but I'm assuming some of you are poting that I'm asking this question this morning. And you're thinking this Christmas story cannot be the Christmas story without the Christmas characters. It would be like apple pie without apples. It, or ice cream. Yeah, there you go. I like that one. It would be Christmas dinner without the turkey or a heaping mound of mashed potatoes with this volcanic gravy coming out of the top of the mashed potatoes. It, it just wouldn't be the same. It would be like a gift exchange without gifts. Can you imagine? That's not a gift exchange. You're not going to exchange gifts. You can't call that a gift exchange without the gifts. How about I offer you some advice this morning? It may not be the best advice, but let me offer you some advice this morning. Stop being so defensive. And stop trying to paint me as a heretic for even asking the question this morning. The question was this. I've just said it a little bit different. Would the Christmas story be the Christmas story if the Christmas characters were not included in the Christmas story? Say that fast five times. Would it be? And here's the answer that I want to give to you. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. How do I come to that conclusion? Because John's account in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Let's start at verse 9 where John's writing. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10. He came into the very world he created. This is Jesus we're talking about. But the world did not recognize him. Verse 11. He came to his own people, Israel, and they even rejected him. Verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become, say it with me, church, the right to become children of God. Then, then in verse 13, we find they, were, they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from who? From God. And then in verse 14, so the, say this with me, word became human and made his home among us. We're going to stop the bus and we're just going to back up a little bit. Because just like the 930 crowd, you kind of said it with a whimper. I want you to say it with force this morning, all in yellow. So the word became 
and made his home among us. That is much better. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. In the latter part of this verse, John writes, and we have seen his glory. John is writing, I have seen his glory. We, the disciples, have seen his glory. Countless hundreds and thousands have seen the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now, if you were paying attention as we read those verses, and if you look at the whole book of John, and actually the first chapter of John, you'll discover that John makes no mention of Joseph, Mary, Bethlehem, the manger, the stable, the donkey, the shepherds, the wise men, or even a star. He doesn't mention any of those in the Gospel of John, and especially in chapter 1. However, what John does do is give us a clear, singular announcement. And what is that clear, singular announcement? The Word became human and made His home among us. If you're reading from a different translation this morning, other than the NLT, it may say something like this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In 1 John 1.14, it becomes the pinnacle of a supernatural wonder. That's the only way that I can describe verse 14 to you in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It is a supernatural wonder. And when you look at 1 John 1.14, you discover that God becoming one of us is both perplexing and mysterious. It is both perplexing and mysterious. Even if you went, Pastor, after, after this service, I want to bend you, your ear because I know all about John chapter 1 and I'm going to explain it to you. You may explain it to me, but you still don't get the full revelation and meaning of John chapter 1. Only God does. And John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing this. It is perplexing and mysterious. It is a passage of Scripture that is difficult to understand, and it is even harder to explain it to someone else. Someone has said this about John, uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus came into our world in a flesh and bone earth suit, the opposite of a space suit, goes on to say this, making himself totally approachable, touchable, and relatable as he entered our earthly atmosphere. That is like the best definition I've read in a long time about Jesus and his arrival to planet earth. It is both amazing and mysterious because Jesus made himself totally approachable, totally touchable, and totally relatable. I would argue that John gives us one of the most prominent statements that we can find in the entire Bible, and in fact, in the entire New Testament. You may go, what is John's declaration that's so prominent that's coming out of John chapter 1? It's this. This is the prominent statement. The invisible becomes what, church? Visible. The invisible God becomes visible to mankind through who? Through Jesus Christ. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, God is mostly invisible to the human eye. God is mostly invisible to the human eye. And when you do see or hear from God in the Old Testament, it is never face-to-face. You never see someone coming face-to-face with God. In fact, Moses, the most revered character of the Old Testament, He has this encounter with God, and God goes, I'm going to pass by you, Moses, in the cleft of the rock, but when I pass by you, you cannot see the face of God and live. You will only see what? My back as I pass by you. Here's Moses, 
the most revered guy in the Old Testament, and he can't even look upon the face of God. No one has actually seen the face of God in the Old Testament. God's revelation in the Old Testament, God was revealing Himself always in ways like a cloud, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a dream, a vision, and things of this nature. John verifies this very idea in John chapter 8. John chapter 1, verse 18, John said this, no one, say this with me, church, has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, we're talking about Jesus here, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Jesus has revealed God to us, to every one of us sitting in this room this morning, to everyone watching online this morning, to everyone on planet Earth, God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. God reveals Jesus to mankind, and Jesus reveals God to us. It is a powerful thought that is both, both mysterious and perplexing. God does the unimaginable, the miraculous, and even mysterious. Arthur Max, uh, author Max Lucado writes this, it defies logic, it's a divine insanity, when he's writing about John, yet John's Gospel, chapter 1, yet it is the very impossibility of it all that makes it possible. Then he goes on to say this, for only God could create a plan this mad. Only a creator beyond the fence of logic could offer such a gift of love. What we could not do, say this with me, church, two words, God does. The word, whenever we're talking about the word from John chapter 1, we are referring about Jesus just to clear the air up here this morning. So when I say the word, I'm actually talking about Jesus the person. So the word, John writes, who is actually Jesus, becomes human so that we could avoid lostness and darkness in this world. Jesus comes into this world. He arrives to planet earth. He puts on the, the earthly suit of human flesh. Why does God do that? So that we would not be lost or living in the darkness. Is that not good news this morning? so that we would not be lost or living in the darkness. A grandfather took his little grandson for a walk one day in the woods, and as they were walking along, he stopped for a moment and wanted to play a little trick on his grandson. So he said, grandson, do you know where we're going? And the grandson said, no, I no idea, Grampy. And the grandfather asked, well, do you know where we're going? And the, and the grandson said, Grampy, I, I have no idea where we're going either. And the grandfather chuckled to himself as he's playing this game with his grandson. He goes, well, I guess then you're lost, son. Then the boy looks up at his grandfather and says, no, I'm not lost. And you think I'm going to say, I'm not lost. You're lost, Grampy. But that's not what he says. He actually says, no, I'm not lost because I'm with you. Because I'm with you, Grampy. John clearly portrays that Jesus is the bridge between hopelessness and hopefulness. Between darkness and and light. How does someone go from darkness to light? How does someone go from lifelessness to life? How do you bridge that gap? How do you move from one realm to the next? How do you go from one arena to the next arena? It is through Jesus Christ. He is the bridge that we walk across to go from darkness to light. To go from lifelessness to life. This thought is very clear in, in John chapter 1, 
verse 10, 11 and 12, He came into this very world He created, but the world did not what? Recognize Him. Verse 11, we find John writing, He came to His own people, Israel, and even they rejected Him. Then in verse 12, John writes, But to all who believe, believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right, say this with me, church, to become the children of God. God gave us the right, for those who believe and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives us the right to become children of who? Of God. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said this about John 1.12. He said, the Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. So true. Tragically, God's own people, Palestine and, and, and the Jews, did not trust, did not follow Jesus, even though Jesus showed up in the flesh as a human. Here I am, the Son of God. They still didn't embrace Him, still didn't trust Him, did, still didn't accept Him. Sadly, I want to tell you this morning that there are many people today who are not trusting or following Jesus. The same thing is happening today as it did when Jesus arrived to planet earth. In John chapter 1, there was a darkness that covered the earth prior to the arrival of Jesus. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, there's this darkness over planet earth. God had not spoken in 400 years. If somebody's ever given you the silent treatment, they have no idea what the silent treatment is. God is silent for 400 years, doesn't say a word for 400 years. That's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. I'm kind of depressed when God doesn't even say anything for a day. I can't imagine 400 years. The darkness was so dark. You're going to say, how dark was the darkness? It was so dark, it thought it was the light. That's how dark it was. It was so dark it thought it was the light. The Roman Empire, which ruled the world at this time when Jesus arrived at planet Earth, it was so dark it thought it was the light. King Herod, read about King Herod. He was a horrible king. Even though he accomplished a lot of architectural and infrastructure within his reign, he was a horrible leadership king. Horrid. Horrible. Horrid Herod, if you want to call him that. <laughs> he was so dark, he thought he was the light. He was so dark, he thought he was the light. Even the church. When Jesus arrived, the church was so corrupt that it thought it was the light. There is a darkness, there is a darkness that is trying to cover the earth today. And it is so dark it thinks it's the light. But only Jesus, only Jesus can show us how dark the darkness is. The good news is good this morning. Any person who places their faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept Him, God gives us the privilege of becoming what? The children of God. He takes us from darkness and He takes us into light. He takes us from lifelessness to takes us to the realm of being alive forever. It is something that only God can do. You can't do it. As much as I have a pastor's heart, I can't do it for you. It is something that only God can do. 
To help us better understand the mystery of God becoming flesh, we need to go back to this question right here. Why would God become human and show up in our neighborhood? That's a good question. Why would God become human and show up in our neighborhood? We briefly touched on the redemption and the restoration piece of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and I don't want to take away from that. That is powerful. That is much needed. And what I'm going to suggest this morning kind of overlaps a little bit, but I look at it as two different things too. So there's the, the redemption and the restoration piece that Jesus offers to mankind. But the arrival of Jesus also shows us and reveals to us what God is like. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. So not only does Jesus restore us and transform us and redeem us, but Jesus also shows us who God is and what God is like. Maybe you're wondering this morning, well, what is God like? And we could spend all the rest of this day talking about this. I could talk about it until everybody leaves the room and still be talking about it the rest of 2021 into 2022 into 2023. I mean, I could never go home, just stand here and talk about what Jesus is revealing to us about God. But we're just going to hit a couple high points. And here's the first one that Jesus shows us about God, is that God is what, church? Trustworthy. God is trustworthy. How do we know that God is trustworthy? Well, let's go back to verse 14 again. Depending on the translation that you're reading, the Word became human and made His home among us. That's the statement that we need to dive into just a little bit here to, one, to figure out if God is trustworthy or not. Is Jesus really showing to us that God is trustworthy and that what He speaks is truthful? Maybe you're thinking this morning, how is that possible? Well, the Greek words for made His home, the Greek words for that statement, made His home, actually means Jesus pitched a tent. So when you read, God made His home among us, it actually means in the Greek that Jesus pitched His tent. Maybe you're thinking this morning, well, that kind of refers to short term. Nobody wants to sleep into a tent long term, right? Pastor, you're suggesting something short term. But when you actually examine all the places in the Bible where the word home or slash dwell meaning God dwelled or God's home was among His people, it doesn't imply short-term, it implies eternal. For an example, if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home, that actually means God's dwelling, if you're reading in a different translation, God's home, God pitched His tent, is now among where? His people. So if you take this and you dissect it a little bit more, it actually means God pitched His tent. Have you ever gone camping before? It's an entirely different atmosphere with campers. You show up in a camping uh, campground and you pitch your tent or you take your RV. Everybody wants to know where you're from. They're friendly. They're outgoing. There's connection. There's community. In that little community, there's lots going on. You never want to kind of go off by yourself. There's just this community. And that's the same thing here. God pitched His tent among His people. It's that God didn't want to pitch His tent on the outside of the campground. God actually wants to pitch His tent in the middle, in the midst of His people. God wants to pitch His tent. I don't know about you, but that's good news. God wants to be among us. Amen? Look at the latter part of this verse. He will live with them and they will be His people, and God Himself 
will be with them. The term pitching a tent implies that God wants to be on familiar terms with people. He wants to be closely connected with us. He wants to interact with us. He wants to be part of our life. Maybe I, if you think about this question, this will help you better understand. What if God arrived in our neighborhood to build a mansion? with a gate around his mansion and the survey, uh, not the survey, but the surveillance cameras on his mansion and the guard dogs and guards with machine guns. And I mean, it's a fortified city. And Jesus built this mansion on the hilltop. It's protected. What would that imply about God's desire to be with us? God, Jesus, showed up in our neighborhood. But he built a mansion over there on the hilltop that no one can get near. God is here, but he's not part of my life. Now go to the Greek translation. Jesus pitched his tent, not in a a building in a mansion, but he pitched his tent. And where does he want to pitch his tent? He wants to pitch his tent on our property. He doesn't want his own property. He doesn't want to build his own mansion. He wants to pitch his tent on our property. Whether you have big property or little property. Whether you have no property and you are living in an apartment. If you're living on the street, Jesus wants to pitch his tent on your property. He wants to be part of your life. He wants to eat at your table. He wants to rejoice when your family grows. He wants... He wants to be there when there's brokenness and tears coming down your cheek because you've said goodbye to a loved one. Jesus wants to pitch His tent in your life. That's what John was trying to say and was saying when he wrote John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among His people. Jesus came to planet Earth to pitch His tent in our life. Jesus became human so that we could pitch his tent, or excuse me, so that he could pitch his tent in our human backyard so that we could have a close personal connection with Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reveal to us that God is trustworthy, that we can indeed trust God. I believe this this morning that God is trustworthy because he is truthful. He is trustworthy because He is truthful. God has never broken a promise in the Bible. In fact, I've never known anybody who God has given a promise to that God broke that promise. His plans for your life are eternal. They're not just for the jam that you're finding yourself in right now and you promise to go to Africa if God gets you out of this jam. No, His plans for your life, they are eternal. He wants to be with you forever. In Psalm 56, we find some wise words where the psalmist wrote, wrote this, blessed, excuse me, is the man who trusts in the Lord. Well, that's good. If you were to say this morning, Pastor, I trust in the Lord. I commend you. I want to give you a high five. Thank you for trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this latter part, whose trust is the Lord. Do you notice, this? Do you notice the switch there? Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. That's one thing to trust in the Lord. This is a whole new level. Blessed are those who trust, whose trust is the Lord. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is that when you use that word trust, you're actually saying Jesus. You're actually saying God. God is trust. Jesus is trust. 
It is one thing to trust in God. It's a totally different thing to whose trust is God, is the Lord, is Jesus. For the 20th anniversary of Larry King Live, Barbara Walters interviewed the man who became famous interviewing other people. She asked him some direct and revealing questions, but two of the most telling responses came when she probed about fear and faith, to which King replied, or excuse me, which Walters asked Larry King, what is your greatest fear? That's a good question. What is your greatest fear? And he immediately replied to uh, Barbara Walters, death. He said, my greatest fear is death. It was 2005. Larry King was at the top of interviewing people. I mean, he had lots to lose if Larry King died in 2005. And she then followed up with this question after he said, my greatest fear is death. She said to Larry King, do you believe in God? To which King stated, I'm not sure. I'm agnostic. I'm just not sure there's a God. We have two choices in this life. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. We have two choices in life. Say it with me. I have two choices. These are the two most incredible choices you will ever make that will alter your life forever. You can trust yourself or you can trust God. Those are the two choices that every person has. Trust God or trust myself. Are you clear on this? Trust God or trust myself. I don't know about you. I don't trust myself. Because just as soon as I trust myself, I make the wrong decision. I do the wrong thing. I go down a path that I shouldn't go down and my life becomes chaotic because I trusted myself. Every time I trust God, life never goes down a wrong path. So we have two choices this morning. We can trust ourselves or we can trust God. We can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ That's whom I'm trusting. The one born of a virgin. The one who lived as we lived. The one who died on the cross. Rose again. My trust is the Lord in both life and in death. Unlike Larry King, I'm not afraid to die. Because I don't trust myself. I trust Jesus. God is trustworthy and we see it through Jesus. We also see through Jesus that God is gracious. That God is gracious. Through Jesus, we see that God is both grace-filled and gracious. John later writes in in 1 John chapter 4, when he's trapped on an island, living out his days in jail, he said, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is what, church? Love. Look at verse 9. John continues to write, God showed how much he loved us. So he's going back to his own writings in 1 John chapter 1 by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And then we find this in verse 10. John writes, this is real love. What is real love? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. It's not that we love God, it's that He loved us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve God's grace. We didn't deserve God's love. 
This world was dark when Jesus showed up. This world is still dark. And the only light we have is the light that Jesus shines in this world, that we shine for Jesus as He works through us. He didn't, we didn't choose Him. He chose us. And when we put our faith in Him and when we trust in Him, He is the bridge that takes us from darkness to light, from lifelessness to life. How gracious is God? He is very gracious. God not only loves us, but He wants to adopt us as His children. He, doesn't always, he just doesn't want to forgive us and redeem us. He wants to make us part of the family. What a great deal. It doesn't get any better than God's grace. It's undeserved, friends. But freely accept it. Amen? Finally, we see through Jesus that God is life and light. That He is life and light. We discover, according to John, that God is both life and light. Let's take a look at uh, John 1 through uh, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning, the Word already existed. So when we use this word, word, where John does, he's referring to Jesus. So in the beginning, Jesus already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 2, He existed in the beginning with God. Verse 3, God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Then in verse 4, we find the Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. So notice there are two things happening right here in this verse. That the Word Jesus gave life to everything. So Jesus gives us life that was created, and His life brought what? Light to everyone. Then it goes on to say in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Amen? That would be pretty powerful in itself. The light shines in the darkness. But listen to what John goes on to say and the darkness can never extinguish it. Can never extinguish it. Can never put it out. According to John, Jesus and God are life and light existing well before there was life or light in the universe. In fact, when we look at Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, we see that there was total darkness and God shows up and He speaks what words? He said, let there be Light and light pierced the darkness. And where there was this void of darkness, there suddenly appeared the light of God and, and things began to evolve from there. And then we go into John chapter 1 and, and John's writing, Jesus shows up on planet earth and it is tremendously dark and Jesus shows us the what? The light. Pierces the darkness. And the light of light and the light of life and the light of God is shining again. A few chapters later in John's account, in John chapter 12, 46, Jesus verifies this when he confirms by declaring, I am. Now that statement, I am, is taken from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we find Moses in this discussion with God. Well, what do I tell the people of Israel who you are, who sent me? And you will, Moses, uh, God said to Moses, You will tell the people this, I am who I am. I'm the great I am. I am the one who created everything. I am the God. I am the ruler. I am the king. I'm everything. And so Moses went off and told the people of Israel this. And here Jesus is in the Gospel of John in, verse, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 46. He goes, I am, I am the great I am. The same terminology, the same reference that we find with God, with Moses, in Exodus. But Jesus goes on to say, I am the light 
of the what? I'm the light of the world. I am the great one. I am the one that pierces the darkness. I am the one who lights things up in people's lives. The light and life of Jesus is a game changer. How is it a game changer? Let me share three quick things with you this morning. First of all, the light of Jesus brings order, not chaos. Can I be real frank with you this morning? If Frank is here, I don't mean I'm picking on you, Frank, but I've observed some of us here at New Hope, we're living pretty chaotic lives. We're living in chaos. Jesus came to planet Earth so that we could have order, not chaos. Our lives are not designed to be chaos. Our lives are designed to live in the order of God's things. What else does Jesus bring? Well, Jesus brings exposure, not concealment. You know what the enemy wants to do to us? The enemy wants to, to trick us to believing that as long as we keep things secret, as long as we keep things hidden, as long as we keep things in the dark, life will be okay. Jesus shows up and says, I'm the light of the world, and my light will pierce the darkest dark. And I want you to know wherever the light of Jesus goes, He lights things up. You cannot hide things. You cannot conceal things. His light will expose things in your life. The question is, as the light of Jesus exposes things in your life, are you willing to deal with them with the help of Jesus or not? If you're not willing to to deal with those things that the light of Jesus reveals, then you will continue to live in darkness. The third thing that we realize is that Jesus brings life, not death. So that when we come to the point of death, we don't need to fear death because we have what? Life. And Jesus gives to us eternal life that goes beyond the grave. So Jesus became human to provide order and revelation and life to all those who believe. Jesus is the real light and the real life bringing an everlasting transformation to our life. In Bret Hart's short story, The Luck of a Roaring Camp, I want to read it to you. The Roaring Camp was the meanest, toughest mining town in the entire West. More murders, more thefts. It was a terrible place inhabited by entirely by men and one woman who died while giving birth to a baby girl. The men looked, took the baby, and put her in a box with some old rags under her. And when they looked at her, they decided she didn't quite look right. So they sent for one of the guys to go 80 miles to buy a rosewood cradle, handmade. He brought it back and they put the rags and the baby in the rosewood cradle and the rags just didn't look right there. So they sent another guy to Sacramento and he came back with some beautiful silk and lace blankets and they put the baby wrapped up in those blankets in the rosewood cradle. It looked fine until someone happened to notice that the floor was filthy. So these hardened, tough men got down on their hands and knees, and with their hardened hands, they scrubbed the floor until it was very clean. Of course, what all that did was make the walls, the ceiling, and the curtainless windows look absolutely terrible. So they washed the walls, the ceilings, the windows. They put curtains over the windows. Things were beginning to look almost as they should. But of course, they had to give up a lot of their fighting because the baby slept a lot. And babies and brawls, they don't go together. 
so the whole temperature of the roaring camp seemed to go down. They used to take her out and set her by the entrance of the mine in her rosewood cradle so they could see her when they came up from the mine. Then somebody noticed what a dirty place it was. So they planted flowers and made a very nice garden there. It looked quite beautiful. They would bring her shiny little stones and things that they would find in the mine, and when they put their hands down beside her hands, their hands looked so dirty. So pretty soon the general store was all out of soap and shaving gear and cologne and all those things that make you smell nice and look good. Before long, the men were a totally different bunch of guys because the baby had changed everything. Because the baby had changed everything, the Word became flesh. Jesus became human and pitched his tent in our neighborhood. He wants to pitch his tent on our property. He wants to be part of our life. And I want you to know that changes everything. Everything. Because the darkness gets lit up by the light of God. And lifelessness becomes life. Jesus wants to be part of your life to the good, to the bad, to the ugly, through the laughter and through the tears, through the feast and through the hunger. He wants to be part of your life. That's why the Word became flesh. Will you allow Him to be part of your life? Will you allow Jesus to pitch His tent in your life? Will you allow Him to take your chaos and bring order to it? Will you allow him to expose things that needs to be exposed in your life so that the true light and life of Jesus shine through? Will you allow him to bring life to you? Those are the questions only you can answer this morning. I pray that you answer them and answer them with the hope of the world. His name is Jesus. Would you bow with me and close your eyes? I'd love to pray for you. Father God, this morning, we thank you for your tremendous love that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to planet Earth. We thank you that Jesus became human and lived among us, that he pitched his tent in our neighborhood, that Jesus, you didn't come and build a mansion on the hillsides that's away from humanity. You want to, you want to be right in the midst of humanity. You want to be right in the midst of our life. You want to be in the middle of things. We pray today that you would push back the darkness, the light of the world. Push back the darkness in our life. Push back the struggles that we're having. Give us the hope and the grace that only you can bring, Jesus. As we look at Christmas, sometimes we focus on the manger, sometimes we focus on the star or the shepherds or the angels or the donkey. But Jesus, John was singular saying, Jesus is the hope of the world. The Word became flesh to live among us. Thank you. Thank you that this Christmas we can celebrate you, Jesus. Your arrival, your interaction, your connection with us. We thank you for this hope that you give to us. If there is anyone here today who does not know you, Lord, may we humble ourselves before you, confess you as the Lord of our life, 
and let your life and light come into our life. May we grow in your ways, I pray this morning. May we trust only you and not ourselves. In your name we pray today. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?